Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, mathematician Podrick McCarran joins us from the University of Limerick in Ireland to talk ARIA. If you're the type of person who's interested in a journal-level mathematics essay, do a search for Podrick McCarran, Narrative Structure of a Song of Ice and Fire. That's not the entire title, but that will get you where you need to go. I am not a math guy. I was able to keep up with some of it, but I was fascinated by the charts. So it's worth it just to see the visuals. After that, I include the first part of a two-part conversation with Alicia from Wool Shift Dust. Alicia is going to be covering the new House of Usher adaptation, which I believe you can begin binge-watching on Amazon today. I've broken my conversation with Alicia into two parts. This first part does talk about Poe's influence on George R. R. Martin, but includes no spoilers if you want to go read the short story and begin watching the Netflix series. Next week, I will include part two of that conversation with Alicia from Wool Shift Dust. Without further ado, here is Dr. Podrick McCarran. I'm glad that your student passed. That's yeah. I'm relieved and slightly hungover. <laughs> of course, just to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, very good, very good. Uh, shall we jump into Arya? Yeah, excited to discuss this okay. chapter. I have to say, it was a, it was short, but it was very interesting. Okay, uh, Padraig. Before we get to Arya, I want to ask you a question. I'm going to give you three death wishes. You can kill any three people. <sighs> And they can be any people in in all of human history. Like you go back and kill Hitler, but we're gonna take Hitler off the off the the board because that's too obvious. Okay. All right. So <laughs> you you've oh got uh, you've got Arya's dilemma. You're gonna kill people, but you also can time travel. Wow. Jeez. This is uh, not the questions uh, expecting coming into this. Um, I have to say, it would be better if I was in a situation like Arya, where I'm held hostage somehow, and I had a pretty big death list. Um, <laughs> my death list, unfortunately, is quite uh, non-existent. Okay, so three people in history, and not allowed to take Hitler, yeah. and then the obvious, and I take an obvious cop out just to give myself a moment to think and say Stalin. Okay, well, um, that's pretty good. I mean, Stalin killed literally millions of his own people. And yeah. starvation. I mean, it just, just, I don't think Stalin gets enough credit for just how horrible he was. Mm. Um, before I give my next one, do you have many English listeners, do you know? Sure. Yeah, I okay. I would say uh, my stats are that I would, I would say about 
88% are U.S. Just the remaining percentage is kind of all over the place. Yeah, fair. So I don't want to cause too much controversy, but I would say Oliver Cromwell, he definitely deserves to Oh, this is on. an interesting... All right, so tell me, tell me why Cromwell... Because uh, the reason Ireland is in the state it's in today is mostly because of his fairly ruthless uh, murder of and displacement of people living in Northern Ireland okay. and in various parts of the country as well. Like there's even we were on holidays there in June and we were on Tory Island, which is this tiny little island, but maybe it's four miles off the coast and there's probably like now maybe I don't know forty or fifty uh-huh. houses on it. And even then, when Cromwell's men came over, they came over to this little island and murdered people, just innocent people. There's a church near where we were staying in Donegal, and it's well known for um, it, it. Just there was a congregation there for Sunday mass, and then when so, well, his soldiers came in and uh, just killed everyone who's mm. all Catholics at this mass. It's just some amount of brutality. You look at all the difficult troubles as we call them here in the north. He's not entirely to blame for sure, but he was definitely instrumental in uh, a lot of the brutal things that happened. Hmm. Uh, and I think he's relatively well celebrated in England, which is why I asked that question. Initially. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> um, I guess I just don't know enough about Irish history as I should. Um, uh, but you're well, right. I you mean, are you're absolutely right. As as someone who's lived in England, I, I never got uh, that vision of Cromwell when I was living there. You look at the, the relationship that English people have with their monarchy, and it's mostly celebrated. Like I know there's people who criticize it to some extent, um, but mostly it is celebrated. They're like they think this is a good thing, and it's good that they have this tradition, this institution. But they were like they were brutal. Some of them were like you know no better than Joffrey Baratheon. <laughs> Some uh-huh. of them, uh, the, the amount of war and destruction and slavery and just general suffering that they cause based on their desires and their whims and their reigns uh, is shocking. And so I think uh, being Irish, of course, I learn this kind of stuff and um, I absolutely do not want to come across like I'm anti-English anyway, because I'm not. I lived there for seven years and I've, uh, I've, uh, I've, well, great. I love England, actually. I love living there. Um, but I definitely think they have a strange relationship with their history. Like, there's uh, numerous instances of people, I don't know, who would be quite well, you know, yeah. educated and stuff, but still would have a very poor knowledge of the atrocities that the people they celebrate were involved in or commit. Well, okay. Yeah, and I guess I'll have to do um, an area and save my third one and use some um, tricking the genie thing. Into... <laughs> okay. All right. I... <laughs> Let's, let's talk about Arya. Here's my synopsis. While at Harrenhal, Arya spends most of her time running errands for Weeze. Weeze's abusive torment has all but broken her spirit. But she steals a silver drinking horn from a knight in payment for a debt, and for a short time gets on her tormentor's good side. She is pulled aside by Gendry, who warns her that Hot Pie might know too much about her connection to Winterfell. Then she narrowly escapes sexual assault by Rorge. Finding Jack and Hagar in the bath, she names Weez as her next death wish. Upon seeing Tywin's host right off to battle, she realizes that her first two wishes have done nothing to help Rob's war. Dr. McCarran, what do you want to talk about today? 
even though this is a very short chapter, there's a lot of things I want to talk about. So hopefully we get through them all. But the main thing I want to talk about, I want to ask you a question, and it is, is Jack and Hagar a warg? Oh, this is a good question. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. I'm going to say no, but I want to know why you're asking. So I agree now, I think no is the answer, but I'm going to give you some very compelling reasons as to why the faceless man playing Jack and Hagar right. may be a word. Okay. So the first one is just when it's described, Weiss, is it Weiss or Weiss? When it's describing his death, uh, it's his ugly dog, foul-tempered dog that murders him. Yeah. And then in the even this is commented in the next Aria chapter about how, like, how did that happen? This dog who he brought up and you know, it was probably the only thing he loved. Uh, how would that kill him and eat him? And we know that Jacques Nagar is responsible for this. So one possibility is that he warged into the dog and murdered Weiss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We la- learn later on when Arya is in the house of uh, many faces or, uh, that basilisk's blood can drive animals insane and can make them very aggressive. And she asks, could this work on a dog? 
going back to this instance, and that possibly solves it. Possibly Jack and Nagar had some basilisk blood, gave it to the dog, and then the dog attacked and killed Reese. Mm-hmm. There's a few problems with that, though. One is this man has just come from the black cells and presumably in a uh, fire when he was in a cart, lost all his possessions. So where is he getting this basilisk's blood? I mean, this mythological creature from, are they in Esos or are they even in what part of the world or is a basilisk? It's possible that there was a, he managed to steal it from a maester and that's mm-hmm. how he got it. Also, it's supposed to make animals very aggressive, whereas once the dog had killed Weez, it just was eating him, it was, didn't, like, he didn't go on a rampage killing everyone, right? Well, so, I mean, um, he, was still, <laughs> he was still chomping on the guy's face, and then he gets shot with a crossbow. A crossbow, yeah, that's true, but, you know. Maybe, maybe he would have uh, won on a rampage, you know. Maybe he would have just, you know, I would have thought it makes him very aggressive, he would kill Luis, and then you try and attack someone else. He wouldn't just go, right now, I killed him, and just going to start lapping up his blood, <laughs> have a bunch of his ear, you know, he's already dead, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. Um... So that's one reason, but anyway, it almost certainly is this basilisk blood, right? Because that would there would be no that's real point in Martin throwing yeah. that in a few books later. However, two other reasons why this is a possibility is that we know that a warg recognizes another warg. And mm. why is Jacken so interested in Arya in the first place? Is he interested? In, like, okay, we only get it from Arya's point of view. Maybe he's interested in all of them. Maybe he was asking Hot Pie the same questions. We just don't experience that because we only see it from Arya's mm. point of view. Maybe he's Cyril Pharrell and changed his face, and that's why he's interested in Arya. Or maybe he just knew that Arya was something special about Arya. Uh, but possibly he is a warg, recognized she is a warg, and thought that would be a great asset to the faceless men. Hmm. Okay. Well, and then I have one more reason, oh, yeah, which yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. even more compelling. Okay. <laughs> and that is that after Jacques Nagar uh, gets rid of the, the faceless man, and gets rid of the Jacques Nagar disguise, he turns into this ordinary looking man with a hooked nose and then he turns up at the start of of book four in the prologue where he meets pate as the alchemist and when he first comes in the nightingale's song changes and even says something to rhyme with something the stranger uh something like iron to gold or something like this and so why would a nightingale start changing its tune or behave differently around this alchemist unless he's some kind of skin changing capability. Say that last thing again, because I, I, I forgot that detail about the Nightingale. So when pa- the when the Alchemist first turns up, um Pate notices that the Nightingale starts uh, sing- song sounds a bit strange mm. and starts being something like gold or iron to gold, iron to gold. And then the Alchemist, which is something that he comments that the stranger uh, people were singing to the stranger or like praising the stranger uh, with that. And then Alchemist comes up and tells him that he can get that he wants this key to the Citadel. And right. will, he's an alchemist and he will create, create gold for him. So the Nightingale is some kind of reflection of either the stranger and because maybe the, the faceless men do uh, worship the stranger, maybe that affects the Nightingale. Or somehow there's some skin changing going That's on. That's so funny. In the tree. For whatever reason, whenever we cover one of these chapters, we cover a talking bird. <laughs> <laughs> what is it with us talking about talking birds? <laughs> uh, so, okay. I mean, I think that these things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. I think it could be also it could be true that he used the fancy berserker blood or whatever. Basilisk, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and I 
think that when Arya's in the House of Black and White, the waif actually explains that this is something that faceless men do. Yeah. So I, I feel pretty committed to that's why the dog chomped on Whis. Um Yeah, I, I agree with that. <laughs> uh it could he also be a warg? Um man, that's that's something that I had not considered before your question. So I probably need to give it some more thought. My initial reaction is skepticism. Mm. But if you were a faceless man and a warg, which I guess Arya is basically, that's what she's becoming, right? She's becoming both those things. I have comments on that, but yes, keep going. All right. <laughs> I feel like, boy, that would make you a dangerous assassin, right? Absolutely. Uh so yeah, I I think he did not warg into the dog. That's my that's my sense. I don't think in this case warg magic, warg magic. That's actually not easy to say. <laughs> I don't think in this case warg magic explains the assassination. All right, so let's let's hear your reaction to that. I mean, I think when I read this. Uh, like in the last week and I was just reading through a lot of various chapters and I read this and then I went to the next chapter and this immediately questioned why would a dog do that? I had forgotten the waif explaining about the basilisk blood. As I had to look it up. I, I... Yeah. Uh, but, so before that, that was my initial thought that he must be a warg. How else would he get the dog to kill him? Um, but then from that, I think that explains that that's not a throwaway line from Martin. That's Martin explaining a mystery he created two books ago. Uh-huh. So I think you're right. He didn't work. I do think it, it is possible, but I also think none of the faceless men are wargs and possibly don't even know the existence of wargs. If you were a warg and a faceless man or a skin changer, I think that would be indeed make you an unstoppable assassin. Yeah. But it seems like faceless men are relatively unstoppable, right? They seem to be. Well, yeah, being... yeah, they seem to have unlimited resources, right? Yeah, so <laughs> maybe they can't really. Maybe you even being a warg won't make them any more powerful. But I am of the belief that they're not wargs and unaware of it, and that this is why Arya will never become a faceless man, and this is what will save her from becoming no one and remaining Arya Stark. Oh, say more about that. Okay, so Arya at this point uh, keeps, even before she's becoming a faceless man, she's already kind of in the training. She keeps taking on new roles. You know, she's like Arya the orphan boy. And then she's um, she's Weasel, and then she's Nan, the or Nymeria, the cupbearer for Bolton, and she keeps taking on these identities. And when she isn't one of these identities, she kind of like I don't want to say loses herself, but she it's probably some kind of coping mechanism. And then when she goes to the House of Black and White to become a faceless man, she takes on roles of things like Mercy, which is coming in the future mm-hmm. book, Cat of the Canals, and. As she, when she wore, first wears this face in, uh, I think it's the preview chapter for The Winds of Winter, um, she gets some of the memories. And they, the, the kindly man keeps asking her who she is, and she says, no one, he doesn't believe her. I think to become a faceless man, you truly have to become no one. You have to abandon all ties, all possessions, your original identity. And we know she doesn't want to do this because she's already hid needle mm-hmm. in uh, near there. So she's trying not to lose Arya Stark. But it's possible she could go through the transition and do it, but because she's a warg, I feel she in her sleep will warg into Nymeria, and then maybe she will come back and become a fa- or she'll wake up and become a faceless man, lose her identity, and then 
that Arya Stark is still in Lemuria and comes back and keeps Arya being Arya mm, Stark and not mm-hmm. no one. I like this. And I think another way you could get at it is to say, no matter how much she tries to eschew her ego during the day, at night, she can't help but be a wolf. Yeah. And to say to be a wolf is to is another way of saying to be a Stark, you know, literarily. And so I think that there's something about like I think I think that the the major anchor is the is Needle. You know, she's not willing to give up Needle entirely. Uh, but yeah. even so, it's like you can't help what you dream. And when she dreams, she has wolf dreams. And so this is always going to sort of hinder her from becoming no one, uh, which I think is sort of getting at what you're saying, at, you know, through a different door, maybe. Mm. Having said all that, there is the faceless men or the kindly men in the waif are aware of her wolf dreams or they're aware that she's been howling in her sleep. So it's possible they just think she's a weird sleeper, but <laughs> it's also possible that they think, okay, well, something strange is happening here, and they do seem to have a lot of knowledge and resources and be all over the world. So it's possible they do know of wargs and do know that she's a warg, but maybe they don't have any experience in training wargs. I, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think he's not a warg. That's how I'm going to answer your question. Okay, I think he's not a warg, and I think the faceless men are not wargs. But it did, in my initial reading of that chapter, that's where my brain jumped initially. So I wanted to discuss okay. it. Okay. Well, I think we we definitely have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What else you got? Uh, well, I have more questions about Jack and Agar, particularly in terms of Rorge and Biter. So Rorge, as you mentioned in your synopsis, is like almost is threatening to sexually assault Arya. And pretty, I mean, pretty met- horror. I mean, he's his threats are, are, are very graphic and... Uh, um, very disturbing. I'll say that. I I want to point out though, after having read all Arya chapters from probably your second or third last one, Game of Thrones, all the way up to Storm of Swords, actually, um, this was like the least sexual violence chapter that happened in a while. So like the previous one, we have um, Chiswick telling the story of the innkeeper and how they basically gang raped. His daughter. That's right, and, and that the, the, it, he, he deserves death because of that. In our yeah, um, and there was a chapter before that. There was uh, the pretty girl who was shared by lots of the mountains men mm-hmm. until she, after hit one of them with a stone, and then the mountain beheads her. And there's just uh, yeah, every the last, those few chapters in in the second book are bleak. Martin really likes to go to 11, doesn't he? He's not like, well, it's not bad enough that this awful man is threatening sexually assault Arya. I'm also going to give you a story about uh, this innkeeper and how they brutalize. It's true. And- it's true. And I think most of it is off page. And then, of course, we've got people like Rorge, who's, who's just horribly graphic with his threats, right? Um, in this chapter, we have, we, we find out that Wee's is trading food for sex with one of his workers, right? Yeah. Um, which, you know, is is a, is another form of, I guess, coercion, I, I suppose. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is a, 
not disturbing chapter. I'm just in relative <laughs> to the previous two, it's right. uh, less disturbing in terms right. of it's, in terms of the sexual violence. Like I just I was I guess I was a bit shocked because um, it is kind of interspersed. So I, I don't know if you remember the article. The first the reason I was first on this podcast was this Matt's article we did, and what yeah. we found on this was your event time distribution. How it looks like the time between deaths are randomly distributed, whereas actually if you put the story in chronological order, they happen more naturally. So you'd be more likely to maybe, you know, predict them or expect mm. the death. And so obviously Martin doesn't like, you know, this is just, he's a good writer. He knows how to tell a story. He doesn't like, you know, or reorder the events to make a more random looking probability distribution. But I was thinking when I read these three area chapters in a row, I was like, oh my God, I wonder does he do the same thing with deaths as he does with the sexual violence that he like, scattered them, them randomly through the text so when you read it it's very shocking but then you move on to another chapter and another point of view character and it's maybe less uh horrific so you, you kind of like get desensitized or something and then or not even desensitized you get you just for, maybe forget about it and then it comes back again in the next area chapter and you're like oh my god this is horrendous i wonder if he's something similar there in terms of how he's ordering yeah just reading all the area chapters together makes it more I think that one of the ways that he uses it is, I mean, if you want a reader to think, well, that person deserves to die, one way to do it is to show that they're depraved in a way that it seems unnatural, right? Yeah, but he's been showing us this with the mountain from the get-go and like you yeah. know when Chiswick's telling this awful story I, I was I'm always surprised when I read that chapter why she doesn't uh, say the mountain and I know you in the last um, area chapter you guys discussed the mountain as a possibility she could have picked but it still is very surprising to me that that's not the route she went down yeah I, that is a good question and I think in this chapter I think the key reveal in this chapter is that she realizes the error of her ways. Yes. She's wasted her first two wishes. Not so much wasted them, but she could have had more effective. Which is which absolutely, you know, kind of follows the genie trope, right? <laughs> yes. Which you, yeah. but which what she, she says also, is, yeah. and I, I think that she realizes, like, I've been thinking about these deaths in terms of my own survival. And yeah. you can't you can't really falter for that. She's a little girl. She's a she's living in t- torment and fear and abuse. But when she sees Tywin's host march off the battle, I think she realizes like I could have done something to help Rob. Yeah, and she goes to stop this. She goes to stop this. Uh, we think right, 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 right. But even so, what is? She, I mean, if we just think forward one chapter ahead, again she uses her leverage over Jack and Hagar to help her help these stark prisoners. Yes, which it also turns out she thought she's been clever tricking the genie and then it turns out it was pointless because they'd already got the bloody mummers. So Right. It was wasted. Yeah, so yeah, right. So she wastes all of these wishes. All of these wishes have to do with the doings of Harrenhal, which is a very small geography compared to the larger map that Martin's created, right? Well, but these yeah. are all meaningful to Arya in some way. Yeah. They're all useful to her at the given time. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's her realization at the end of this chapter. She thinks, I had power. I had legit power 
for this moment in time. And I completely misused it. And I mean, it's not like the world is in a better place for Wee's being off the map, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, Wee's was horrible, but but what kind of impact, what kind of global impact did Wee's have? I don't know if, I think that that's kind of crucial to her development. She She realizes if ever I have power again, I need to use it in such a way that helps my tribe and and not just for my immediate survival. Yeah, it would be interesting if we ever do get literary chapters to see, does she reflect on this? Is this a lesson she learns? Okay, now I have this power myself. I have to use this to help John or to, for my family mm. uh, rather than being, okay, I've got to do this to escape my current situation. It'd be interesting if she reflects on that and learns from that. Well, I mean, I she's developed her she list, right? Yeah. And some of those people on the list, like Cersei and Joffrey uh, in the mountain, I think would have a greater impact for the narrative. Mm. But I think that the reason why they initially went on her, her list is simply for revenge. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And becoming a faceless man i think she thinks she will have the power to do this but actually the faceless men don't do that they don't take revenge they don't have their own vendetta <laughs> right, they, right. It's, it's it's a job right. strange yeah, one yeah, but it's yeah. a job yeah no it's it's interesting in that way because she's kind of becoming a devotee of this new religion yeah. or new to her religion that's supposed to sort of eschew ego but in her quiet thoughts, you know, before she goes to bed at night, her prayer is all about revenge. So she's kind of developing her own religious devotion. Her prayer, like, very quickly, she is a very dark character, considering how in Game of Thrones, I think when you initially meet her, and one of the reasons she probably is one of my favorite characters, when you do first meet her, she's like, a, you know, the adventurous uh, kind of tomboy character. And she's very exciting. And then she goes through Clash of Kings or bleak, bad things happen her continuously. And she keeps adding new people <laughs> to this yeah. list and her death prayer, basically. It's a, it's like if I, I imagine if I came across Arya just from the second book, <laughs> she became a point of view character then. I probably wouldn't like her as much right. as I do from her that, bringing that's against right. That's right. Yeah. She's, she's becoming a, an assassin and. Uh, someone who's driven by this this dark need for vengeance. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing I want to talk about with her is that she's in this chapter, and maybe for the last few chapters, she's on this path that we'll see Theon eventually go down, and I think he actually loses himself in another way. Like, he becomes a reek. And he becomes reek because he's so fearful. He's so driven by fear of Ramsay that he can't imagine doing anything to slight Ramsay. He can't imagine escaping from Ramsay. He just will not do it. He becomes a tame animal instead of a, a human, really. Mm. And it, I think this is what is starting to happen with Arya. Like, she becomes a mouse, and she has an opportunity to escape. She sees her, her opportunity. She actually has a plan that she thinks will work for her escape. 
but wheezes in the back of her head. And she's thinking, I, uh, I know what he, like, I'm so afraid of him. I don't want to do anything that would make him angry at me. And, yeah. and so she is, she, she's kind of flirting with that. And there's a moment where like, for a moment, she's a wolf again. Cause she like steals the, the knight's silver drinking horn and she feels alive and she feels like a wolf again. And then Wheeze is there to smack her down. And all of a sudden she, she's that mouse again. And it isn't until she decides to dispose of Wheeze that she can actually break away from her psychological enslavement to him. Yeah, it's it's terrifying enough, her thought process in this, isn't it? When she's like outside the walls and she's delivering something. And there's two moments. There's, that happens earlier on, I think, when she has the sword um, that she gets from the blacksmith. And she thinks she could use it to go out and right to find the knight she has to bring the sword to and they won't know they won't be able to read so that she could escape that way and both times she thinks oh but Weiss would still track me down and find me and you know i've made a note here that um she's more scared of Weiss than she is of gregor she calls herself a sheep under gregor where she feels she can't do anything but she doesn't really mention much about him going forward or like in these chapters whereas Weiss, she's like terrified of her yeah. this idea that he can smell her fear or smell her uh, treachery or thoughts she believes this um, and it is you're right it's very similar to Theon Reek uh, like he's he never thinks oh I should just kill Ramsay and be done with it he's so terrified of ever sliding him yeah that, um, he, he just will obey and it's strange to see Arya in, in this situation but she does have a get out clause but and maybe killing Weiss is very important for her development because of that, because she probably doesn't have that level of fear anymore after this. So, yeah, I think it is important that Weiss is taken out because otherwise she's going to become his creature. And mm. so it's almost like crucial for her narrative that she survives, assuming that she is... I don't know if she's going to kill the Night King or something like that, but I, I'm assuming that her narrative is important for the overall outcome of the story. Um, and in that way, you know, maybe the death of Weez is crucial, right? Uh, we just don't know how she's going to end up being important for the story yet. No, we have very little indication. We do, based on the original title of the seventh book, which before is a dream of spring was a time for wolves. We do assume that the characters mm. get back together, or at least probably John, Sansa, Ariane, Bran. Um, I'm clear about Rickon. Mm. So I would assume that they all do come back together and then use the different powers they've learned, like, you know, Sansa's maybe politicking, John's uh, all of his skills, his warrior, him being a warrior, basically. Arya's uh, assassin training skills and then Bran's knowledge I presume that will come back so that they'll have their uh, maybe mm. retribution <laughs> alright so Special this thing. is one of these times where a really I think a really important moment here that you could almost miss is there's this little conversation she has with Gendry where he says Hot Pie heard you yell Winterfell when we were in battle. And I told him, 
what Ari said was go to hell, not Winterfell. And uh, and he says, so you're going to have to tell him the same story if he asks you. And she's like, fine. But for a moment, she says, should I, should I give Hot Pie's name to Jack and Hagar? Thinking like, this is a, Hot Pie's a problem. I can't have my identity revealed. Maybe one way to solve the problem is to have Hot Pie assassinated. And <laughs> I have I have this quote written down because I was so shocked by that statement. I, like the quote, the full quote is, "She didn't dare tell Hot Pie who she really was. Maybe I should say Hot Pie's name to Jack." So I think it's it's sort of like a throwaway line, and you could miss it. But I think that Martin is playing with this idea that power corrupts, right? And I think it's one of these times where it's like she has very, very, very little power, but she does have tremendous power at the same time <laughs> and so what so it's almost like any problem that comes her way she's thinking how do i solve that problem with the power that i have and what and so mm-hmm. she she it does pass her mind like should i kill hot pie and uh and i think she had a similar thought about lami greenhands a while back uh she doesn't she doesn't give over these are just fleeting thoughts, but the mm. power brings with it darkness. Oh, it's interesting. That's how you read it. I didn't read it that way at all. I, I saw it was I, I kind of two similar interpretations, I suppose, really. One is that um, she's terrified of her identity coming out because then she could be she could be sent back to King's Landing or she'd be revealed. As yeah, that's the problem, right? She doesn't. She, so, she thinks that she needs to solve that problem. Yeah, so it's it's not so there's that's like protection. But then the other way I read it is the same way. Do you remember when we discussed um, the John chapter where Mormont gives him a long claw, and John in his head isn't that happy? He goes, "Well, I want his ice." You know, that's the Valerian story I want. But he's he's very self aware about this, and he knows that well. Of course, I should be grateful, and and he is in person very courteous. And I remember discussing this with you and being like, "You often do have these." random awful thoughts like right. what, I just do yeah, yeah. what if i did just kill this person and i read it very much as that was an area fleeting moment like a sort of like neurotic little thought mm-hmm. that just went through her head um you know she's ter- she's terrified of being found out she is hot pie maybe doesn't know oh i could just get rid of him ah you know discard that thought you know i we all definitely have crazy moments or crazy thought just past your mind and then you could just yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that you could read it that way. Like, this is just a passing fancy. But what we don't get is the second thought that we we all usually have. Like, yikes. Like, that that's that's a dark thought. I, I, I'm surprised my mind went there or whatever. <laughs> so you can get back to normal, right? But... Yeah, I, she doesn't mention again, though. She doesn't consider it again. And she does think of Hot Pie. There's later, no so second thought. Feel... Like... I can't kill Hot Pie. He's an innocent little boy. <laughs> There's nothing mm, okay, like that. Yeah. Right? I don't know. I don't yeah, want to judge her doesn't... too harshly. I just want to say that the limited power that she has is that she can choose people to die. And so it's almost like that is she's got one tool. It's a hammer. And whatever exposed nail happens to be needing yeah. a, a hit uh, you know, maybe she, 
Maybe I can solve it with murder. That's just always the, the thing she's going to think about. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a very, it was interesting. It was quite a like shocking moment that hot pie, like not hot pie. <laughs> right, and I I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I maybe maybe I'll come around to your view on this. Like it's just a passing dark thought, um, but she's capable of that kind of dark thought, and I I, I think that. It's an interesting moment in her moral development, I feel like. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, like, would the area of book one have made, had that passing thought? And probably not, but look what's happened to her for the last, effectively, nine chapters we've yeah. had, you know? So, yeah. um, it's not... It's She's kind of been driven towards this, like, dark path, so it's not surprising that these dark, brutal thoughts would just cross her mind, probably, and then just not all the acted out on. Uh, do you have anything else that you would like to? Two more okay. comments. Uh, one very, very brief one. Polliver is seen leaving with the with the bull helmet of Skendry's. Um, why I comment on this is because it's Dunson who takes the bull helmet. Polliver took Needle. So I wondered, was that a mistake, or was because Dunson was sent off? I think with Greg, or maybe or Dunson went somewhere else. Uh, it's possible that she gave Oliver. But anyway, I just, I just come that I wondered if it was. A yeah, I noted that just, uh, too. I thought maybe I had, I had forgotten a detail in between that would explain it. But yeah, I'm not sure what to do with that. Yeah, no, me neither. And then the only other one I've got is this idea that Rorge is scared of Jack, and I mentioned it briefly, but never went back to it. Uh, so I'm wondering what are Rorge and Biter? Why, why are they scared of Jack? And that like. The three of them work together. In the next chapter, Arya thinks for a moment are Roger and Biter creatures that he has summoned that they're like bound to him somehow. <laughs> um Rorge is like an awful vile man. Biter seems to be a deep one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, Biter seems to be some kind of amphibious monster <laughs> whatever. I think, in the yeah, guise yeah, of a human. Little... Uh, and I think that there's a lot of uh, little hints to, to that. Uh, I don't know what Roy's deal is, but he's pretty horrible. Um, so, <laughs> but but, but it, he's horrible. He's scared of Jack. Yeah, and he's scared. Surprising. So what does he know <laughs> that we don't, that he should be scared of Jack? And like, he hardly knows he's a faceless man. Does Jack can have something over him? Or some hold over, and even when they going forward, when they do break the Northmen out, um, it's Jack and gets Roger and Biter to do this. You know, he they get they get the soup, um, so they clearly owe him something, or he's got power over them, and that's quite a strange one to me again. So I can't figure out what power Jack and Agar has over them that he can get them to do effectively whatever he wants, and they're scared of him. Yeah, I wonder if it's sort of like. Um... Just simple prison psychology. Like at some point, there's going to be a pecking order. If you if you leave prisoners mm. in a cell together for a long enough, they will develop a some kind of either tribal political system or uh you know very very basic. That guy's the baddest ass around. He's in charge. That kind of thing. And so okay, I don't yeah. know what Jack and Hagar had to do to demonstrate his prowess, but clearly they clearly Rorge is afraid of him. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, Rorge could go away. I don't, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind if Rorge <laughs> just went away forever. The only, the only interesting, the main interesting thing about it is the fact that he has Biter and Biter. In I think one of the last podcasts I was on with you, you asked me my thoughts on the deep ones, and I was not that. I knew the <laughs> mm-hmm. deep ones, but I wasn't that familiar with them. So I read it up on them afterwards, and then I started reading these area chapters, and like, oh right, so Biter, yeah, explains why he's got these weeping sores in his cheeks. There are some kind of gills, and that's why he's got pointed teeth, yeah. And te- yeah. pointed teeth, and uh, his. Um, his arms or something weird about them and his skin color. So it seems that he is a deep one somehow, which is a... Well, and you've also got a little bit of Lovecraft in this chapter as well, because Vargo Hote, he's from Kohor, and his sigil is the Black Goat. Kohor is famously uh, devotees of the Black Goat, which uh, is a nickname for a god in the... Uh, Lovecraftian pantheon. So notable introductions uh, we hear of uh, Lucian or Lucan for the first time, Sir Lionel, uh, someone named Tuffleberry, and uh, there are just a few notes that I made about what people are wearing, but go ahead and uh, what were you going to add? Oliver Queen. We have the second last sigil who lives with uh, Tywin's host is the Green Arrow. Okay. Tell me, remind me about the, the significance of that. Uh, the Green Arrow is just a DC character, a little bit like that. Oh, uh, oh right, 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 right. The Green Arrow. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. Very good. I like that. Uh, I, I did want to note that uh, Tywin is said to be wearing an ermine cloak. And mm. uh, this, just because I've had many of these conversations, I've learned along the way that in the medieval period, there were laws about who could wear what kind of fur. And so if it was exotic fur um, you or exo- or an exotic color or, uh, or an exotic fabric, uh, it would absolutely tell you something about someone's political status or social status. And so the fact that Tywin is wearing something, you know, exotic clothing sets him apart from the peasants who are legally not allowed to wear that kind of stuff. They just took it to be that he was like rich. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I think that that's probably a part and parcel of the, the, the law, I guess. Uh, just one other way to separate the classes, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, notable departures. Uh, well, Tywin's host uh, leaves. Hall for good and uh, we see sort of them leaving in in uh, segments uh, Tywin's group last of all you know and I, I think most of their host leaves but they do leave the bloody mummers behind and of course that creates a, a different kind of problem um, and then of course goodbye to Wheeze um, and good riddance <laughs> uh <laughs> Show differences, you don't have this bit about Arya being almost hit by the knight, and then she ducks it and steals his silver horn and runs away. That's a nice little bit of action uh, that, yeah. and sort of reminds us that Arya is pretty crafty and quick and can be pretty uh, slippery in a pinch. Is Weiss in the show? Who's Arya's second kill? Um, hmm. Hi, folks. Just jumping in here. 
oversight on my part, of course, in the show, Weez is not the second kill. The second kill in the show is Amory Lorch. My apologies to Podrig for not remembering that during our conversation. Also, while I'm at it, another oversight on my part, Tywin's wearing that ermine cloak. Ermine is in the Weasel family, which of course is a less than subtle literary motif given Arya's nickname. What might this be? Well, Tywin gave it to me. What for? To take to the armory. Why would he do that? Let's go and ask him. Amory Lodge. The girl has named a second name. A man will do what must be done. Now! A girl cannot tell a man when exactly he must do a thing. A man cannot make a thing happen before it's time. But he's going to tell Tywin he's getting away. It has to be now. That actually reminds me of one other little uh, kind of image, which I, I presume was intentional. It's Arya steals this, the knight's uh, drinking horn, and then Weez promises her, I think, the wing of the bird he's eating that night. And then when she sees him eating it, and he doesn't, he calls her over, and she thinks, oh, he's going to give it to me now. And then he just is annoyed with her for looking at him, so he um, pushes her, and her clothes get torn on a loose nail mm, yeah, yeah. and then when she goes back um, she she goes to repair it there is a comment about her needlework uh, or using the needle to fix it and then at the time I think she's thinking about uh, either her death list or else just uh, about killing Weiss but I thought that was a nice little image of her with the needle and then her with the needle being her sword. Well and also I think that that is kind of the alternative fate for her. She would have been raised as a sort of very domestic daughter, eventually becoming a lady. Mm. And I mean, as a servant girl under Weez, she's cowed into that persona again. You know, she's she's not using a sword. She's using a needle. And this is a legitimate danger that this is part of her psychological enslavement, I think. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And do you take much heed on the fact that she is creating a new identity for herself at each time? Or do you think this is like a coping mechanism because of she's a young girl who's being, you know, emotionally scared mm. here? Or do you just, do you think it is a sort of nod to the fact that she's going to become a faceless man or going at least going to training to become a faceless man, taking on a new identities as part of the, her role? Maybe that was what's why Jack and Nagar might even be interested in her because he can tell that she's not a boy, probably. So the reason and he can see already. Oh yeah, yeah. Say, uh, finish what you're gonna say. Oh, just, he can see already that she's taking on new identities. So maybe that's why she's interested uh, to the House of Black huh. and White. To the, face of the reason why I take it seriously is because not only does she take on these new identities, but Martin actually will title her chapters differently along the way. In yeah, in feast and dance, this is certainly true. At this point, he doesn't, but yeah, he he she does refer to it like the, she's a mouse at the moment under Reese, and that mouse image is used quite a lot. Yeah, I think yeah, that's right. And she's not necessarily good at keeping her identity a secret, as we saw mm. with the hot pie dilemma. <laughs> um, but eventually, she's going to be really good at becoming a a whole different person, or at least pretending to be. So much so that. 
Martin is going to start titling her chapters, you know, Mercy or mm-hmm. Cat of the Canals or things like that. So, And I think for me, the key dilemma in her heart is, do I want to be egoless or do I want to be Arya Stark? And I think eventually she's going to have to make a conscious choice about who she wants to be. Um, and th- for me, that's that's what one of the things that makes her the most fascinating. Yeah, I can see that. And I do think Martin plays this idea a lot, though, doesn't he? Of like a character having to assume another identity and then maybe maybe even refine themselves. Um, but I think Arya, it's one of the most obvious because she actually she's already referring to herself as a here a mouse, uh, a weasel. She's already taking on new identities very um, overtly. Compared to yeah, characters. yeah. Padraig, it's always a pleasure. I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like um, we probably went down a few rabbit holes that that <laughs> yielded no results whatsoever, but it was an enjoyable journey nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> So, Alicia, I reached out to you thinking that maybe we could talk about some parallels of some of the stories that you know better than I do, uh, parallels between those stories and Game of Thrones. And you suggested that we do something uh, Edgar Allan Poe related. Right. As you can probably tell by the darkness of George R. R. Martin's writing, he does have some Poe influence growing up, um, which, yeah, you can see in iconic parts of his stories. And uh, it's I thought that was a great you know thing to discuss around this time of year. Yeah, yeah. So it, it does not come as any surprise to me. We know that he influenced in a few ways by Lovecraft and, of course, right. you know, why not... Why not reach into the godfather of classic modern horror, um, Edgar Allan Poe? So I'm not a huge Poe aficionado. You know, I I have read a few of his short stories. And uh, what you suggested to me was that maybe we both reread uh, Fall of the House of Usher and talk about some parallels between that story and Game of Thrones so I've I've reread that and I'm kind of shocked that there's so much here to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, so just a little background is um, that yeah, Martin has come out you know on several occasions and stated that he's uh, he is a fan of Poe. You know, he helped fund a bust that's currently in a library in um, Boston for Poe. Um, and he a few years ago he told a story uh, in a speech where he said that he got a, an assignment in high school to rewrite the end of Poe's story, The Pit and the Pendulum. And uh, it, so spoilers for this story. Uh, but it ends with a last minute saved, which he of, of the guy who's in the pit, having the pendulum about to slice him open, rats ready to eat his entrails. Um, but he saved to the last minute because the Inquisition ends. And Poe, oh, sorry, and Martin thought that that was wholly unearned. And uh, <laughs> so he rewrote the end of the story so that, yeah, he it slices him open and he, the rats eat him and he dies. And he says the entire class cheered. And that was one of the early signs to him where he's like, I don't know, maybe this writing thing's kind of cool. <laughs> so this is kind of a something of an origin story of George as a writer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's fantastic. 
So that's general. But why the House of Usher is, well, first of all, there's going to be um, there's going to be a Mike Flanagan Netflix adaptation uh, coming out. Okay. And that's and I'm going to be covering it on my podcast, Wool Shift Dust. Where I'm actually going to do a special episode with my sister, who I grew up watching horror with. Um, and I've seen that it's it's a very loose adaptation, but um, but yeah, it is one of his most iconic stories, and I can definitely see you know the parallels in it. Like I'm curious to hear what you thought, but you know places like Harren Hall, uh, mm-hmm. the twins, obviously. Um, yeah, I do want to talk about that. I. Uh... I just want to say real quick, uh, in praise of Wool Shift Dust, I really did appreciate your coverage during Silo. Oh, thank you. Um, and in many ways, I appreciated the, you know, I was not a book reader of Silo. So to have the companion podcast was really, really enhanced my experience of that show. Anyway, oh, good. you guys did a great job with that. Thank you so much. Um, I ended up having to do a deep dive into the history of Heron Hall as soon as I right. finished reading this, mm-hmm. which we should probably discuss at some point. But before we do that, I thought I could just lay out a few broad brushstrokes of the story, and uh, maybe we could uh, fill in some of the gaps after I do that. Okay. Great. So this is a story that was published in a series, and do do correct me if I get any of this wrong. Um, this was a story that was published in a series of segments published more widely in the uh, monthly paper. I, I'm not sure if I want to call it right, a magazine. I'm, yeah, I mean it's like uh, early literary magazines, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was this was uh, often how. Short stories were published uh, in Mm -hmm. 1839. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is 1839, and I think it was a series of four parts of a short story. The basic idea is that the main character is returning to a childhood friend's house. And this particular childhood friend, um, Roderick Usher, is the inheritor of this great mansion, and so he, this guy comes from wealth, but his family seemingly has some kind of curse hanging over it. And so he remembers his friend, you know, his boyhood friend, you know, full of life. And he arrives and he realizes that the house is sort of doing damage, both psychologically and physically, to both his childhood friend and the friend's sister, Madeline. And, right. um, and when he, Arrives at the property, the property really feels cursed in a way. And uh, then he goes inside. Of course, nothing <laughs> nothing changes his view. His friend just is just convinced that he's going to suffer the same curse that the rest of his family has suffered. And his sister seems to be further along uh, in her, I don't know, ailment you know, she's sort of wasting away and she seems to be closer to death than the brother. And then right. I, I don't, I'm not sure how much more to say about this, but for full spoilers, I guess. Yeah. I guess if, if you haven't read the story, you know, it, it would maybe take 20 minutes to read it and you can get a free PDF 
on many yeah, different only websites. Like, it's only like 10 pages or something. Right. Yeah. You could probably pause the podcast and, and go, you know, read that 10 page PDF. It's just a fantastically wonderful, very, very descriptive story, as you would expect from the great Edgar Allan Poe. But it ends with a punch. Okay, that concludes part one of my conversation with Alicia. I will include the lion's share of our conversation next week, where we talk about some of the specifics of the short stories. And that is all for this week.